Gin Alley. Muggery. Molly! Backgammon player! Oi! <laughs> Watch out, it's only Maureen. Pull your neck in. Much improved. Now! Oye! Oye! Welcome, all ye gorgeous Ben Georgians, ye backscuttlers, ye muff divers, ye fingersmiths. Welcome to Ducky's Queer History Club. Princess Podcast. What? Wait, 18th century podcast? Where have you been, you saucy queen, to catalog for trade? Where punks and carved garden nuns for pleasant deeds get paid? I'm a princess, you're a princess, this is a princess podcast, welcome all. We're travelling back to the long, queer 18th century and today I've got the world's most eloquent graphic designer, Ducky's very own wank mag maestro, Zed Gregory. Hi Zed. Hi EJ. How you oh, doing? Hi babes. You're all right, hi. <laughs> and I'm also lucky enough to have Kate McSweeney, Community Partnerships Manager at the British Museum. Is that right, Kate? Is that the proper fancy title? That is. There, there is a um, a clause, participation in collections. After that, but yeah, oh, yeah. You, you basically, oh, basically, me, you got me. it right. <laughs> I, I, I work with with community partners of all kinds. Exactly, and and particularly, Kate. This is why I'm I'm so keen to talk to you and and respect the work you do so very much. I genuinely mean that. You specialize really in co curation community practice, new ways of working in museums, and that's what we'd like to talk to you about, maybe to give everyone a bit of context. We've been going backstage behind the biggest, poshest museums in London with our Princess Ducky researchers. And one of the places we've gone back to again and again and again, very much thanks to the effort that you've made, has been to the British Museum. That's where we've seen, for example, the, the 18th century soldier and diplomat and spy, the Chevalier Dion's, uh, the, 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 the engravings of, of this extraordinary character in history that really helps us visually locate gender diversity in this period and in the past and the fascination that the press had with it. Also, we saw prints of Molly's and Macaroni's, didn't we, Zed? We did, In indeed. the library. That was an extraordinary day as well. And everyone's favourite. I love that we all got shushed because it was so <laughs> it was so um, fun and so amazingly inspiring that everyone got so excited that we got shushed by the very, very conservative researchers in the background. One of my key moments at the British Museum, being shushed. <laughs> Loved it. Well, this is kind of... A very nice place to start this conversation because that's what we think about museums, that they're shushy places, mm-hmm. right? And I was at the um, Kiss My Genders at the Haywood just before lockdown and my brother and I were there and we were having so much fun and we were talking about And, yep, sure enough, I got shushed there as well and took everything I had, you know, not to turn around to this person that was shooting me and going, I work in museums, I'm allowed to be as loud as I like, you know. Um, but but that's kind of what we think about. And yet when we come in as 
queer punters, you know, it's maybe even a bit posh to say that way, researchers, do you know what I mean? Why glorify it like that? We're just really interested in the past and our people and what we can find. What do you think we bring to the museum? I know what we get from it and I'll talk about it, but what do you think the museum gets from us coming? I mean, if in a word, I think it's kind of the bravery, you know, to ask the questions, you know, to say what you see and not necessarily be overthinking, you know, the academic, the thematic or the kind of collections history, but actually just to ask the questions and be brave enough to ask them. And that, and that is research, you know, it's not a too posh or over-egging what it is, it is research. And whereas I have colleagues, of course, who've been looking at these kind of queer histories as well through their own work, it's about that collective endeavour to ask questions, to, to, to go beyond you know what the archive says what the collections record says you know what's been exhibited before what the label says and that's a bravery that you know shouldn't have to exist but it is in that context of you know those quiet places where you know museums have were you know invented to try and create order and categorize and you know mm. and and find ways of explaining the world and that's not how it is anymore. And that's not just, you know, queer researchers coming in. That's about non-museum people putting their eyes on collections, people who haven't, you know, spent years doing it in a certain way. And that's what that new perspective, new eyes, new brains, new ways of thinking. Um, and and that, you know, ability to ask questions that perhaps have, haven't even been thought of in that particular context before. Yeah. Do you, do you think there's something about kind of us um, as queer people, like looking at things in a different way and looking, looking for ourselves in a very different way? Or, you know, I think EJ said before about kind of it takes one to know one. Yeah, I imagine it helps. And, and but certainly I think there's, you know, people recognize these histories, they recognize themselves or people like them in the past, but perhaps doing this together with people who haven't been thinking about it in that way or looking at their collections in that way is helping to surface some of these stories. And certainly, um, I think, you know, these histories haven't been brought out to the public, you know, in, in the grand scale of the public in, in any way outside of some, you know, LGBTQI themed um, exhibitions or displays. And so bringing in that diversity of, of thought and diversity of perspective yeah. really does help to, you know, those histories are there. They're not hidden. They're pretty, pretty obvious a lot of times, but it's about surfacing them and it's about giving them time and about taking the time to, to research them and to unveil them, you yeah. know, and, and to bring them to kind of the the, the eyes of the museum really as well because often that there just hasn't been that considered effort to do that in the past yeah. outside of you know a couple of displays exhibitions or people who've been looking at that themselves and do you think as well like the so us, us being not academics in a way you know we're not we're not so uh, desperate to have like solid solid proof and uh, and so maybe we're more kind of open to those conversations and and going like oh hang on they live together you know like two women slept together in the same bed obviously lesbians without mm -hmm. actually having to have kind of you know eyewitness accounts or things that academics quite often do want yeah maybe or just maybe not the kind of uh, the dogma of proof you know where academia often asks for you know 10 different types of evidence to you know prove a theory and actually it's around asking those questions of the evidence that is there yeah. actually and kind of saying well this is what we're seeing this is what happened you know what 
kind of, you know, conclusions can we draw? And that goes back to, again, this idea of, well, what is research? What is evidence? What is proof? What is truth? Mm-hmm. And perhaps, yes, bringing that, you know, um, perspective to a collection that has never been looked at like that before does does help and does and does raise those questions. Because, you know, if research is, is questions, right? Yeah. It's about questions, looking for answers, and those questions help with that process for sure. But also as well, I suppose, because we're not, we're not, you know, there isn't the same sort of level of shame attached to those kind of histories. And so, you know, now when we talk about it, we're not, you know, the, the family isn't necessarily going to sue for libel because we haven't got kind of, you know, 100% proof. Yeah. And I think there's also something around kind of um, the freedom to, to do that, you know, to, to look at the collections in that way when they haven't been looked at that way before. So museums traditionally and places like the British Museum being one of them tend to categorise objects and research into looking at things in particular ways. So it might be around materiality. It might be around, you know, provenance. It might be around, you know, who made it or how it was made. And actually thinking, you know, kind of thematically around kind of the holistic meaning of objects and stories and histories allows for those questions to be unpicked a little bit. So, you know, some of the collections that we looked at may have been looked at before. So say some of the Chevalier Dion uh, prints, they may have been looked at in terms of the kind of the artistic style of them, or they may have been looked at that moment in history, but actually bringing together history, context, perspective and lived experience allows, you know, for those conversations and those questions and to be done in a very different way than say perhaps someone who is a specialist in 18th century engraving you know if that's Mm. so it's it's bringing those specialisms I think in and and recognizing them as specialisms lived experience and perspective and all the research that you did in other places and bringing that into the British Museum and adding that nuance to, to the collections that are here. I love that you bring up this idea of lived experience because I think it's something that happened time and time again when we went in as a group that I found sometimes almost emotionally overwhelming. We talked and talked and talked when these these pieces came out, right? It wasn't just a matter of sort of cruising along a glass cabinet and going, oh, yes, there's something that might be vaguely queer and going on to the next thing. Because of the environment and because we were going out on a day together. Do you know what I mean? And and we were spending time together as a community. There's a whole lot of value embedded just in that entire process anyway. And, and finding museums a place where you can go and have meaningful interactions beyond maybe spaces that are stereotypically being thought of as queer meeting spaces, you know, um, and being able to go in there and sort of locate ourselves as a group of people and really dig deep into the objects. And one thing, came up time and time again, and and particularly, I think, with Dion, was this idea that we could recognise this spectacularisation of their lives today. And I remember we went over to Blythe House, where it's an off-site um, facility for, for those of you who have never managed to, to go to Blythe House it's, it's where the collections used to be stored they're being moved now but we went to Blythe House and we saw some some pieces that weren't on display and and one of them included the Chevalier whose gender had been debated to the extent that there was wages bet on the London Stock Exchange and that was actually depicted in one of the prints that we saw their gender had been debated by the media throughout their lifetime. And then we saw this one print that was of them after they died with their dress pulled up and a biological drawing. So you can see this feminine dress in the background, the biological drawing of their genitalia, right? And literally 
the gender queers in the room, like everyone just gasped, you know, like it was absolutely horrific and terrifying. But we went from there down to the um, graveyard, didn't we, Zed? Mm. And it, it has um, the monument that's got their name engraved on it, essentially. And we had this moment where we retouched with a bit of respect with where the Chevalier had been buried. And for me, it felt like there was a community journey into the museum, a re-reading of this object by recognising from our own lived experience what it's like to be terrified of having our bodies investigated as trans people and how this is done publicly so often. And then this community experience transferred beyond and kept going outside the museum. And I think for me this adds an understanding not just of the collection but the way the collection impacts on our lives, how we carry it beyond the museum and back out into society because it's teaching us more about our people. And I wonder if there's a messiness in that, Kate, that you think that the museum still struggle with. Is there still a tension there or is this new way of working with communities and museology now really hitting its stride? Um. I think those of us who do it are hoping that it is. I think, you know, the the constructs of museums, particularly kind of Victorian era museums and the way they're set up means that we're still on that journey. But certainly we have to reimagine, you know, what we are and how we do the work we do. And the idea of being a place that communities not only access, but use and utilize for the benefit of whatever agenda, whatever purpose that they want to use these collections because they are public collections and it might be from your particular project or, you know, some of the kind of um, cultural groups that we have come in who are looking at you know, objects that were, um, you know, from their past, but they've never seen before because maybe they're second or third generation here, being able to take these stories back out and those stories create life. They are inanimate things often in the collection, in the stores, but actually they get life with people creating narratives and stories and imbuing them with love and meaning. Um, and that's what happens. And, and and along with that is the traumatic objects, you know, that uh, print, that drawing that we were talking about, you know, yes. um, and that was something that's, you know, a hundred and something years old, but actually the story that it tells is as relevant for some people today as it as it was then. And actually using, you know, historic objects to help with current kind of social justice um, kind of campaigns and agendas is really important. And, and that means the collections are useful and used, you know, beyond their aesthetic, beyond, you know, recording history and documenting the past, whoever's past that is, but actually can be utilised and used. And that's really important. And I I believe that's how museum collections should be used. Oh, I think that's so interesting. Zed, remember the one we saw that had the Chevalier on a plinth, like a little miniature Grecian statue? Oh, yeah, yeah. And it had all the jurors and they were 12 women sitting in jury stands judging the Chevalier and they had just one little sash over their genitalia and basically these 12 women were judging whether the Chevalier's gender matched their sex. <laughs> Mm-hmm. essentially and it was just like oh my god this is turfs today <laughs> this is putting a, a trans person on a plinth and debating as a group of and I just I mean I found it extraordinary and so I think there's there's something about being given access to the collections like this to do it in a space beyond the gallery 
That's actually quite important because then there's a little bit more safety and a bit more space to own, to think about things. Absolutely. Museum buildings, even study rooms filled with, you know, your group, your your compadres in this is it doesn't feel like a safe space. It's still a museum space. It's still an, an authoritative, officious space. And actually those conversations can start here, but it takes a whole lot of confidence and comfort for them to continue here because these have not traditionally been um, places where open and honest conversations can always happen. And hopefully that changes, but actually it doesn't have to be. The stories don't need to stay within these walls. They should go free. They should fly out and take on whatever life they need to. Um, but it is really interesting about how museums need to let go of that. And I think they are, and I hope they are. But actually, it's around the life that these objects have on a store shelf is not the life that they should lead. They should be, you know, taken out and, and used. And, and that's, that's what's really important. And that's what, you know, breaking barriers is. It's a bit of a cheesy phrase, but it's saying like the, the barrier to access, you know, getting into those stores is a practical one. But actually, once once the objects enter, you know, are released, social media, photographs, images, those conversations can happen with anyone wherever. And, and, and that's what's great about it. And the museum doesn't have to be, even be a part of that necessarily. We, we've 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 coined a phrase where we say we, we we're keen to put the pub back into public history kate <laughs> I'm with you. <I'll> go. <laughs> fantastic it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you um i i can't thank you enough for for how you've helped us get in and and arrange these materials for us to see it's it's been such a huge part of so many of our lives and actually we don't want to stop Kate we want to keep coming <laughs> well I'm here and, and, and I think the best work happens when the ideas come from the outside you know and that's what helps to keep you know keep museums dynamic so any more projects ideas you have you know call on me I'm always happy to to do the intros open the doors pull stuff out and you know eventually people will be laughing and joking with us not shushing us right yeah well we'll come in and we'll just make sure that we get shushed again okay (laughs) thanks kate uh no problem thanks thank you thank you Throughout this Princess podcast series, you'll hear the voices of our Princess community researchers. And in this episode, I spoke with Frida about their experiences of turning queer research into live performance, or as we like to say, of putting the pub back into public history. Frida, tell me, when you've been going on these trips with us, we've been both, well, all of us, we've been very aware that we can delve in through these archives and find these rich materials, but obviously it's the 18th century, it's the height of the British Empire, this is the recording of colonial history. What haven't we found? And tell me about your process of, of navigating that and then turning it into performance to bring the unwritten queer history alive. So basically, um, like you mentioned, I started going on the Ducky Princess research trips about a year ago. And what I was finding was, yeah, I I just basically went along just to learn because I was just really interested. And um, I felt quite honored to be part of the Queer History Club when we started performing. Um, And initially, I was just going to do a reading and um, as part of that, obviously, it was a performance. So I had to think about, you know, who was the person I was going to be when I was going to be reading these words, when I was going to be reading the words of a witness at the Princess Serafina trial. And I thought, well, it would be kind of fun to just be an Indian sailor. 
right? And I, I thought, okay, why don't I find out what Indian sailors look like? I did some research. I found a character. I thought up a little story for him as a sailor that, you know, he was a sailor and he would be running around London and doing the things that various sailors do in London. Um, so what would it look like to dress up like him and say those same words, but in the body of an Indian sailor? And, um, you know, I'd never done anything like that before. And I got quite a nice response from, you know, our, our fellow princess crew, but also from the audience at the RVT. And I thought, you know, I might as well just continue doing this throughout our for each of our shows. And for the next performance, um, I wanted to really think about what it would look like. Uh, I was really interested in the relationship between servants and the and their employers in, uh, well, in India, but in the India of the British Empire. Uh, And I, and so I decided to look at into well, quote unquote, the archive, but actually just doing internet research into looking at first person testimonials or first person stories of uh, either English women talking about their servants in India or trying to find some type of record of servants themselves talking in their own voice. I couldn't find any uh, any records of servants in their own voice. Um, and while I could find lots of allusions around the relationships between employers English employers and their servants. In the end, I ended up going to a novel, and I found a novel in which, uh, and I, I was able to, you know, looking at various texts that would refer to English women, white English women writing about their times in the colonies. I was able to find this one writer who wrote extensively about uh, the experience of what they would call memsobs, like uh, white English women in India. And I found like this this one novel where this the narrator or the main character was more or less obsessed with her her female servant, and this whole section where there's if you read it, it's very obvious that either the writer or the or the main character is actually kind of fixated with her servant, and it's kind of sexual, but it's also moral, and there's all this stuff going on. And so I decided, you know, what would it be like to play both the narrator, the person narrating the text, uh, the character of the servant, uh, but then bring in one of the princess researchers to play the the white colonial woman, and what would that look like on stage? Uh, which was really quite interesting um, to have that experience of trying to do the research and trying to find these various voices and to realize actually, like, the quote-unquote historical record, as far as I could find, didn't even represent either of these voices. I had to go to a novel to find a shadow of those voices. Um, and then, yeah, and then I just kind of kept on going, and I um, I ended up deciding to look at the world of sex work. I don't know, I, th- I, I think this was related to, our, to the themes that we were working with. Um, and I found a... Um, I, 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 I was looking... I was interested in looking at finding the voices of, say, concubines or mistresses in the colonies in in India uh, of these English men to see what their relationship was, how they viewed these men who they were attached to. And I couldn't find anything. I, I could find a lot of work written about concubines, but I couldn't find anything written by a concubine or by a, by a sex worker. And so I ended up finding through a lot of, you know, digging around, I found um, 
a book written by a East India Company officer who came back from many, many years in the colonies, basically writing a a guide to East India Company officers about life in India, where he basically talks through how to get a concubine and how many how many women you should have, how much they cost, how much it costs to put them up, you know, and more or less sort of a race administration a little bit, like, you know, according to where they're from, according to what caste they are, how, how dark they are, um, how old they are, how much you should expect to pay and how much it keeps to, how much... Um, you should expect to go towards your budget. And I found this fascinating. Like it was, it was almost like talking about rent or any other household costs. Like how much would it cost to have multiple women on your, um, on your dime? Um, and yeah, in, in, in my final performance, I decided to do a similar sort of exercise in which I was really interested in finding the voice of um, either a concubine or a mistress uh, to talk about the themes that we were doing as part of the show. And I end up not being able to find anything after doing tons and tons of research. And I end up writing to to you, EJ, and saying, listen, I can't find anything. So maybe either I sit out this one or I do the one I did last time. And you told me, hey, just why don't you write a piece yourself? And that was actually uh, a really transformative experience because I was able to take all the bits and pieces that I had been finding and create the first person narrative that I wanted to find right? But also play with it and be creative and challenge it a little bit. And um, yeah, it's it's been a wonderful experience for me because I, I don't see myself as a performer. Um, I do see myself as a researcher, but you know, I'm not in, as a researcher, I've not been a historian either. So taking together all these bits of both first person narratives, secondary sources, being critical of the secondary sources as well, and then being able to put together a performance has been very, very exciting. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I can't wait to get stuck back into the archives when we get out and at it again. Um, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it and for, for everything that you've done to make all of this happen. It's well exciting. Thank you so much, EJ. And now from the world's poshest museum, we've nabbed our very own trans curator, screw you, workplace diversity, we demand deviancy. It's Zorian and the four Ps. Pamphlets, places, people and pornography. This episode, it's... Pornography. What do we know about pornography in the queer 18th century London, Zorian? Um, well, uh, we know quite a bit. Uh, there's a couple of different key areas where you can find it. Um, one of them uh, was uh, there was a there was a sort of a good sex guide of the Renaissance, basically, um, which the Catholic Church tried very vigorously to suppress. But you you can't keep a good sexy book down, basically. So this book was called uh, Pietro Arentino's I Modi or the Sixteen Pleasures. And it was like republished um, over the centuries. It was very, very popular again in the 18th century, where it was republished many times um, with erotic um, uh, illustrations. And the bodies are very androgynous usually, which explained as a lack of access to naked female models. But in the end, I don't always buy that. And in the end, it just kind of looks like hot kind of, mask on mask action really because they're both extremely muscular uh, they have pretty similar bodies and then the woman just usually has um quite unconvincing boobs in slightly the wrong place that have been 
popped on a male body, basically. So there's a lot of queering to be found in there. And of course, all the uh, the libertine novels, um, Marquis de Sade and Andrea de Nercia, for instance, um, had a lot of um, illustrated novels which came out that were um, quite the thing to purchase if you were looking for an erotic engraving in the 18th century. Would they have been expensive? Um, they would come out in many different types so you could get very very top of the range uh, very fancy leather bound ones or you could also find um, much much cheaper volumes which um, were no frills basically and did they have the same sort of content usually not I mean it's the illustrations that make would often make a book more expensive Um, but uh, but yeah there's and different illustrations would go with many of the different editions that came out. So some of them are saucier than others. Um, <laughs> Were the cheaper ones saucier? <laughs> um, I think, unfortunately not, probably it was the other way around. But something like Fanny Hill, for instance, um, that's a, a book that still, you know, is probably still in print, but um, that came out in 1766 and was um, written by a man called John Cleland, Fanny Hill, Memoirs of a Woman. And it's sort of, um, there's a lot of brothel scenes, there's a homosexual scene in there, um, but it had many, many different printings of clandestine printing um, and it remained banned or illicit until the 1970s at least. But it's still circulating. It's still circulating and it would have been, you know, quite widely available in different formats, um, you know, throughout the period of time we're talking about. So do you think if if, if it's still circulating, even though it's banned, do you think it's just widely socially acceptable, though, or nonetheless? Um, well, it's certainly you could say uh, that the great demand, you know, you can read a lot in the demand that comes out for these things and that there are so many different versions or so many different pressings over the years. There's, you know, we can see that there has always been um, a great desire and a great demand for, um, you know, raunchy, saucy content, um, the sort of thing that we've been investigating. My name is Samantha Sun. Um, I am a artist, a performer. Um, I guess extra now because COVID has completely fucked the industry. Um, and just like general grifter about life. What am I famous for? I go on podcasts a lot to yell about sex workers' rights. I talk a lot about like how being Asian, East Asian, and part of like the British colonial diaspora deeply affects my just existence really and how I conceptualize life um yeah I'm just a pro nude scallywag about town (laughs) (laughs) and that's me (laughs) Gino that's so 18th century to end on that I'm just a scallywag um I'm really pleased to be here by the way really pleased to be here um so my name is Gino uh, Juno Roche, I, suppose, I never use my surname, but it is Roche, and it's always, it's on my books and everywhere. So I'm a writer and thinker, and it's really important for me to say I'm a thinker because if you're working class, it's the one thing that you're not allowed to do. You're allowed to produce stuff, but how dare you stop and just think? So I'm a writer. I've, I'm currently writing my fourth book. Uh, my first book was called Queer Sex. My second book was Transparent. My third book was Gender Explorers. I kind of write about sex and bodies. 
And I wondered why I could, and I interview people. I often, I write about my own body in really great detail and my sex life in great detail. And I wondered why I kind of felt like, I thought this morning, why did I ever think that I was okay to do that? And I thought, I don't think it's because I know anything more about any of that stuff. I think it's just, I got really angry that people weren't asking better questions about pleasure, especially when we go through the processes as trans people that we go through. You know, when my surgeon said to me, <clears throat> don't worry, I'm going to make you look real. I wanted to strangle him because I was like, I didn't fucking care about looking real. I need to have orgasms. That's real. And so, like, I feel like that's, so that's, that's why I'm a writer. I'm a writer and a thinker. And I'm really, I'm, I love, I think the landscape of the body is the landscape of everywhere. And I think that, you know, in terms of patriarchy, colonialism, a whole bunch of stuff plays out across the landscapes of our bodies. So I'm fascinated by that. She just wants to come, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you're so completely true. Don't we I, mean, I, I, I genuinely feel like it's the most important question to ask. And I sometimes say to people, Listen, if I can do one thing in my lifetime, I'm getting older now. I just want younger queers to grab someone and say, don't talk to me about looking real or pleasing you. Just tell me, can I come? And can I come easily? Because it matters. It matters so much to our kind of mental and sense of well-being. Well, this, this I mean, really, in a way, this, this connects us right back to what we were talking about at the beginning. This shift between sex workers having autonomy and wanting to do the work that they do to being criminalised or seen as neoliberalist, capitalist, you know, um, leeches, right, or, or similarly not having control over their options and therefore just caught up in the capitalist system. Why haven't these conversations moved since the 18th century to today? It seems to me that we're still trapped in these misconceptions about the industry, workers' rights, uh, the, the, the idea that we can have control over our bodies. The fact, as you say, do you know that there's more than one sex worker, just like there's more than one trans person, you know? Why aren't we getting anywhere with these conversations? Or are we, or I'm going to leave that sort of open. Sex work as a, like, just a, like the word itself is attempting to validate what we do and give give us our humanity on the basis of how we are productive how we are able to align with other kinds of work mm. sex work is really more of a form of anti-work that it like people who engage in sex work for the most part are probably subscribing to the idea that like you are not put on this earth only to work and create things for capitalism and then sell yourself and then die we were put on this earth for leisure to in, to enjoy to like that's not what life is about life isn't really about that that is an extremely threatening point of view for late stage capitalism for socialism even as well like for all kind of forms of like organizing society that idea that we as just a group of people and of as individuals do not owe it to anybody else to like create and provide and continue to produce and consume is super threatening. And then also like, I think like most movements are incredibly distracting. I think of like how, and this is very sort of white feminist, bless them. I love these goils. 
They're very fun. I like them at cocktail parties, but I never want to have another conversation about sex positivity. Fuck off with that shit. It is always this conversation amongst straight girls in particular about like, I'm so empowered and like, I love strippers because they're so empowered. And to me, it's just like, they fundamentally do not understand sex work. And I'm like, most sex work experiences are not that sex positive. Mm -hmm. And sex positivity completely detracts from what most sex workers need in order to access their rights. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares about the like conversation about empowerment. We want to be paid and we want to be not criminalized. And unionized that's, even. Yeah, yeah we, that's what we want, right? Yeah. Whether or not we are sexually empowered and love our bodies and blah, 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 blah is incredibly I, secondary. But, and I, but I also think that's a kind of Hollywood fiction. I mean, that whole thing yeah. has come from a kind of Hollywood fiction, which came out of a few books in the 1980s written by people who described themselves as high class. That notion that somehow there would be like a high class I oh, like that phrase, high class hooker. Yeah, and it's like what happened. What that kind of set up was this notion that somehow just a few, always white, always beautiful, always skinny, and Julia normally, Roberts, and normally quite posh, rose up to the top, and that they somehow would say they would be the comment, the social comment on everything that sat beneath them. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that, and then that they gave rise to a notion of sex positivity and empowerment. Because if they could be a part, you know, I'm like, a, you know, if I, I'm like a high class hooker, if I can lie on my back and open my legs and have money and I've got a jet, and it's like, come on, like all you're doing is creating work or creating narratives for them. It's got nothing to do with you or to do with kind of sisterhood or any of that other stuff. But I think it's really fucking important. I think it's really important because I think that, I mean, I come at this from a slightly different angle in the sense that I didn't, I mean, for me, there was a kind of lack of safety always mm-hmm. and forever. And mm-hmm. actually, sisterhood became a really important part of stopping that from happening, making that more safe. Do you mean when you were in sex work? Yes, absolutely. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your your background? So, okay, so like, so um, I'm trying too hard not to go into stuff too much. So I was on drugs and therefore I was on drugs for a long time. I was an addict. I was in and out of everywhere for a long time. And you know, I'd sold everything. I'd even sold my mum's dog. She left it with me for like half an hour. You know, like when you get to that point, and like for me, that for me, that still that selling my mum's dog still hurts me more than anything I ever did. But I mean, I write about it now, and it's, it's comedy. I mean, it's comedic, but actually, it still stayed with me as my kind of low watermark. Yeah, not sure. the number of cocks I processed in and out of my gob. Processed. Yeah, yeah, really. But that's the okay. But that's the thing. But I mean, for me, it was about safety. It was about how do we do what we're going to do when the people that we're doing it with often, and I've literally written about it this morning, about an experience I had, and I knew that the person was dealing with an internalised homophobia. Mm. You made me do this. You know, it's the same thing with terms of transphobia. You made me do this. I'm not really queer. I wouldn't be doing, you know, that kind of thing. So I think for me the thing is, is that, is that there's been a kind of an, a, a, a kind of mechanisms outside of us to try and separate us out and say, well, these are kind of good and sexy and exciting and sex positive. And those are the things. So then women start to go to kind of 
pole dance parties. Oh, fuck off. I hate that. Really? Fuck off. I I mean, it's like I literally, the most I could do is to sliver down one, literally, (laughs) and lean against it. So I think that kind of led to that notion. And then it meant there were these other, and I agree with you, the most fucking bright, intelligent, sassy. And when I say sassy, I don't mean sassy in that. I mean sassy in terms of politically sassy, able to kind of pick and pull up bits and pieces and go, this is my identity and it's a strong identity, were people that were engaged in selling sex. Mm-hmm. However you want to say it. They were people that were engaged. And I don't think, for me, I had nothing. Listen, very few experiences I ever had, I would, I would describe as empowering. In fact, fucking few of them were empowering. Most of them weren't. I used to kind of have like a hundred thousand different exit strategies. How can I get in and out of this with as least friction as possible? And I don't mean that in any kind of whatever way. And get paid. Yeah, I mean, I see a lot of um, uh, parallels between this and, for example, drag. Because I had this conversation with um, a drag queen I work with, Shay Shay, about how... um, People validate drag as a practice by by way of talking about how it's empowering in terms of gender expression. My opinion on this is that none of that actually fucking matters. What actually matters for drag as an industry in order for it to thrive is the ethics about whether or not you can get paid more than 50 fucking pounds for a drag show. Yeah. I'm sorry. It takes two and a half hours to put on a fucking face and the wig yeah. and the nails and yeah. the outfit. You should be getting paid. Like yeah. that's empowering doing yeah. drag, like drag in it of itself to me. I don't care if it's empowering or not, yeah. but it's that conversation for the mainstream that I think people just focus on and it's so distracting. In fact, I think it's incredibly harmful and I never want to have another conversation about whether or not something is physically empowering. But that I think also brings us to like the crux of the issue when it comes to like the the Venn diagram of trans and queer dialogue and sex working dialogue is the idea of essentialism which thank yeah. God I did an art degree because then I can like talk about essentially. <laughs> You're so posh. <laughs> I know. Thank God. But like people have like, people are so weird about physical essentialism. And for people who are listening, let me explain what I mean by essentialism. Essentialism is like a thing a lot of like, particularly like white feminists kind of subscribe to that they believe that there is something inherent about your physical being so your biological sex in many ways to your lived experience um and they kind of like misconstrue this because they're not wrong but they've got it backwards you have a essential sort of experience of your physical being because of societal factors not because of your body. Your body means nothing in this sense. And trans people know this deeply because you are not, your experience of being female or male or non-binary has absolutely nothing to do with your quote unquote female or sort of your family jewels. Has nothing to do with that, right? All of that is about all the stuff around it, all the like yeah. the societal, the political, the history, everything, the like expression, none of that has anything to do with how you are born, your skin color, your height, your anything like that. Yeah. And I think people have a really hard time trying to like pick this apart. 
Yeah, I mean, I always like every time I've come. Uh, I mean, I don't do this anymore, but I used to sometimes talk to people like teachers or head teachers or people that were involved in that, and I would say to them, you know, if, if you can't accept a woman with a cock and a man with a vagina, then then you can't accept trans bodies. We 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 don't go anywhere because the fact that you know, but the last time I ever did any research into it. This was quite a long time ago, but about 80% of all trans women, and I didn't get the data for trans men, but about 80% of all trans women globally will never be able to have certain... Uh, they won't be able surgery. to afford it, even if they can no. get in the queue, even if their country offers it. You yeah, know? absolutely. They, they just, they just, can't, they just can't do it. Yeah. And in lots of countries, it's, actually, it's illegal. So you have to be able to afford to leave the country to get surgery. And then that's a fucking, that's a dream. Yeah. yeah. So there are, there are, there are, so we have to make kind of rules and kind of legislations away from essentialism because essentialism just says that group of, let's say there's 60%. Let's say there's 50%. Let's be really, let's be really, let's say 50% of all trans people can never have surgery. That means that essentialism says that that group there are only ever mentally ill and are not worthy of saving. And, you know, I can't subscribe to that because that's a, that's a punitive thing. So, you know, mm. those kind of feminists that say that, those people that say that, people that talk about essentialism are not even talking about their own bodies. Because as you say, Sam, I mean, the thing is, is that, listen, no one knows what I've got in my knickers. You know, no one knows in my village. So that, therefore, I'm treated, I'm treated in a certain way because I present in a certain way. And I'm treated in a certain way because of the weapon by sexism and misogyny and patriarchy and every other thing that defi defines a middle-aged woman, mm. middle-aged white woman, is this kind of person. So therefore, mm. you, know, you know, I always say to people, when people book me to talk about being HIV, I say to them, listen, when I leave my front door, people to see a middle-aged white woman who, who they think is middle class, that's what they see. So that's our starting point. My starting point is that I'm not the person at risk because of my HIV. Mm -hmm. I have no risk around it. I have a privilege around it. Uh, and, uh, so I think it's really important to kind of, um, yeah, I don't know what, I don't know, kind of know well, where I was going with that. Well, I, mean, I, I think I, it's something I quite liked where it ended up for me. <laughs> I, I think it's something we've talked about before as well, Gino. Um, it's come up in a conversation before. I struggle with the chant that is often bandied on marches. Trans women are women. Oh, trans men yeah, are men. Yeah, yeah, and I'm yeah. like... Can't I just be trans? Yes. I'm not a cis man. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> trans men are trans. Yes. Trans women are trans. And trying yeah. to locate a sense of that being the finishing point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've always, there know, is I've not always... a goal for cis normativity in, yeah. this, in this. This is not as well in any way, shape or form possible on my trajectory, you know. Yeah, yeah. And well, uh, by the way, if, if, if non-binary is under the trans umbrella, how does that fit into the trans men and men and trans, you know? And so, again, I think we actually see this essentialism manifest within our own communities as well. I think so, really. Yeah. Well, like, and when I started to talk about, so, like, as you know, I don't, I say I'm trans. I don't, yeah. and I say to people, don't say woman, don't say transgender don't say any of that and um and I and I always just and I also say to people that I describe I don't describe my genitals as being uh, I don't I never say I have a vagina I say I've got like an upcycled cock and balls that resembles a vagina and them's my words yeah and then when I say that to people they're the first people that have a gut me are trans women and they say to me 
But if you say you've got an upcycled cock and balls, then they just then they they're like then they think it's true. And I'm like, fuck off! I don't care about them. I'm going to describe my body. We're all just like really creepily obsessed with other people's genitals, yes. and I would like us to stop. Like we're all yes. just, I'm like we're all just like overgrown chimps, overgrown apes who have too many like too much brain and too much gray matter. So we have all this like overthinking and anxiety about things. Like can't uh, can't we just divide us into like one group of chimpanzees? That like to show the other chimpanzees our butts and then well, the other chimpanzees give us bananas and that's it like can we just, <laughs> why is it any more complicated <laughs> I, I i think we and i really hope that we could but at the moment like i like for my book that came out last year i remember talking to an uh like a boy who was in his teens trans boy and he said uh, we were talking about school and he said to me you know what and he kind of did that bullshit moment with me that i really like when people do that when when i was asking questions and he was like you know what and he didn't say bullshit because he was 14 and really polite and nice and he didn't need to be, but he was. And he said to me, you know, all I do at school is hold in my pee. That's all I do all day, every day is hold in my pee because I'm not allowed to go to the toilets I go to. They tell me I have to use the women's toilets or I have to use a toilet, which is a janitor's toilet in a cupboard. And I'm, that's why. So in a sense, it's like our genitals have become the bat. They become the the little bighorn. They become the battleground. They become the som. And it's like, and it is really unfair because people are trampling over people's genitals. And mm-hmm. it's like, and I know what that's like. I know what it's like to have people really grab your genitals. And I don't want anyone to do that metaphorically or physically or, or legislatively to young people. And you know, when that young boy told me that that's what he did, I just thought. Those kind of comments just make me go, you know what? No way. I'm, I'm, I'll stop fighting when I die. Yeah. Because <laughs> then yeah. I'll have to stop fighting. But until then, and it's like, I agree with you. Get the fuck out of my knickers. Get out of my underwear. It's none of your business. Unless we're fucking, and even then it's none of your business. Unless I tell you it's your business. You know, it's like, it's, it's that kind of thing. But, you know, our genitals have become the fight over which they are prepared. The same people that did the porn. The same people yeah. that said the porn shouldn't come in and they stopped quit they then they outlawed gay porn, which was unforgivable because they recriminalized a whole bunch of gay men, you know, 20 years after they've been decriminalized. So it's and like in turn only normalized straight porn and, and everything that goes on in it that you know, so absolutely. It, it again creates this this yeah. hierarchy of acceptability. Yeah. Yeah, anal, like, anal, you know? anal sex can happen between a man and a woman, but anal sex can't happen between, you know. It's like it's just this kind of odd kind of stuff that we do where we kind of, where we redefine. It's almost like I see it almost like a kind of landscape and that people put fence posts up around certain things and go, that's fine and this isn't fine. But my genitals are okay for the world to know about. That's why in a way I suppose I've always written about them and talked about them because I grab that power before anyone's mm. going to grab it. And I talk about, I always say to people, I feel like I tell every story I tell by looking down, opening my legs and opening my lips and diving in. And then I tell my story from within because then no fuck is going to get in there. And yeah, I'm going to keep doing And it's powerful. It's like it's. I guess <laughs> that is partially also why um, for a while I sort of like was not really out and not really in. But I, I think the reason I like being more out about sex work has nothing to do with how I feel about it and more that I couldn't I don't think I could stand somebody trying to co-opt my story and so the most powerful way I can avoid that is by actively telling it and 
doing so as like authentically as possible because then nobody can misconstrue or misunderstand me. I've already, I've already mm. told people what that is, like what the story is, which is very interesting. There's a lot of, um, there's just so much overlap here, which is why I find it difficult to, to separate sort of the story of sex workers with LGBT and queer history because they've always been interconnected. Yeah. And yeah. I think the can't of, trans women are women and trans men are men is very similar to sex work is work. And it's like, yeah. it's actually, <clears throat> it's a way to validate us in the of eyes course. of the default, but I don't care that the default, you yeah. know, the society validates me. I actually don't care. Yeah. The real truth is that I think sex work is anti-work. Yeah. And I think trans people are humans in their own right without having to be held to the standard of, Cis normativity. Cis normativity, exactly. Yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Only we tell our stories better. We have only achieved the stuff we, that we've achieved when we've thrown bricks in the past. Exactly. That's when we've achieved stuff. That's when we've achieved stuff, yeah. Beware the pious gear-faced cove Who against your joys bids caution His righteous zeal may be disguised for blackmail or extortion. Oye, oye! This has been another rowdy chapter in the Princess Podcast. Yes, podcast! Our operatic ditties were voiced by Oberon White and written by Dr. Ducky Ben Walters. The music was written and arranged by Jacob Garside. Additional music was composed by Arnold and arranged by David Norman Beard. This podcast was recorded remotely under lockdown and was produced by Simon Levans for Ducky and funded by the National Heritage Lottery Fund. I'm EJ. You can see images of all the artefacts we've drawn queer history from on Ducky's website at ducky.co.uk. Stay tuned for our next episode of... Princess Podcast! Ha 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 ha!